Hello, friends. Welcome to the Thinking Pilates podcast, where we're having rich conversations about the Pilates mindset and a whole lot of other human-y things we're interested in. I'm James Crater, a constantly curious mind and consummate student of toddler and animal movement. Joining me is my good friend slash co-host Chantel Lopez, who you'll be hearing from soon. If you're a Pilates lover or someone who only knows it as that ab work class at the gym, we hope you'll stick around and explore some conversation with us as we hopefully help to expand the definition of Pilates. A bit of a warning. As much as we like playground movement, we love adult vocabulary. We hope you won't mind and that you enjoy all the other words in between too much to care. Well, everybody, this is it. This is episode 71. It is the final episode in season three of Thinking Pilates podcast with our guest, Jill Miller, who many of you will know as the creator of Yoga Tune-Up. She is also the author of the book, The Role Model Method, The Science of Rolling, and also just lots and lots of other things, kind of a pioneering teacher in the realm of fascia and movement and release work as it applies specifically to yoga, but certainly her work and her vision expands far beyond the practice of yoga asana and into the realm of being more balanced and vital humans, which as you know, James and I are all about. So we're going to get right to it. You can find out all about Jill and all of her creations and all about the work that she's doing in the show notes. And do not turn off the podcast before you hear a little bit more about Momentum Fest. This is your last chance, really. We're so close, days away now, and it's not too late, I would say. And we've got some other things to share with you too. So stay tuned. We love you. And here we go. Jill Miller. Well, welcome everybody. It's Chantel and we're back. And of course, I'm here with James. Hello, sir. Hello, Chantel. (laughs) How are you? Uh, I'm good. Just got in from doing some gardening, was picking some blueberries and checking in on tomatoes. Nice. Nice. How are the tomatoes? Uh, well, pretty monstrous this year. I mean, they're already, which is surprising because, you know, we're, we're in NorCal and uh, we had a really cold, late um, winter. And the tomatoes are already, I planted them, I don't know, maybe the second or third week of April. And they're probably already five foot tall. Holy so smokes. Good. What? I know. I know. Right. <laughs> Right. Are you like what? in sort of dinosaur land with the tomatoes? I can't imagine. <laughs> you must have like you must have some kind of magical well, soil. We well, we planted ours like two months ago, and they're they're not doing anything. Okay, so I have been I've been a gardener like <laughs> we're sidetracked already. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, everybody. That's um, Jill Miller on the line, by the way. <laughs> you no, know, my my jaw's on the floor because we'll, we'll even get, in my we'll imagination. In the, <laughs> we'll get to you on that whole it. yoga tune-up thing after I'm done talking yeah, about right. tomatoes. Don't, 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 don't we'll worry. We'll talk about what's important. <laughs> <laughs> 
So this is right the now. first year, you know, I've, I've, I've been gardening for a long time, and this is the first year that I've really gotten serious about um, uh, caretaking the soil. And so I overwintered the garden with some clover. I did a lot of composting, um, worm castings. I really took care of the soil and have been um, playing with the beginnings of what is called Korean natural farming. You can look it up. I still don't understand exactly what it is. But a lot of it has to do with um, the beneficial fungi, or what they call IMOs, um, mm. indigenous microorganisms. So playing with fungus and compost and different stuff in the garden. And I'll tell you, this is – I'll post a picture or something. I keep meaning to do, mm-hmm. like, an Instagram thing of, like, the whole garden. But, yeah, the tomatoes are – uh, about five feet tall, all of them, and I have about thirteen tomato plants. <laughs> oh my God. That's insane! You are just the biggest nerd I think I have ever met, I and am. I love you so much. <laughs> I, I already have my takeaways from the podcast, so I think we're done. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Korean natural farming and compost. The end. The end. <laughs> Ah, oh, that's so great. All right. Well, in the show notes, besides um, giving you all kinds of wonderful information about our guest, Jill Miller, we will also be posting pictures of James's garden <laughs> and links to find out more about Korean, what is it, Korean gardening? Korean natural, Korean natural farming. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's from Korea, but it's been big in Hawaii for a long time, and now it's making its way to mainland. Oh, fun. Oh, so yeah. fun. Great. Great. <laughs> well, <Yeah>. welcome, Jill. <laughs> welcome to our podcast. Am, am I on the right Korean podcast? Mean. Are we going to talk? <laughs> I mean, maybe we could just talk about whatever we want. I mean, I went on a motorcycle ride this morning. We could talk about There you <laughs> go. Talk about that. There you go. Uh, well, Jill, really, hello and good morning, and thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm, <laughs> I'm learning a lot about indigenous soils. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, you, so much more in store, I'm sure. Um, well, Jill Miller, you are uh, pretty um, prolific in your work with movement. Um, for those of you who may not know of Jill and her work. She wrote a book called The Role Model and created a um, a program, a method. um, What would you call it, Jill? What do you call yoga tune-up? A program? Uh, A technique? Yeah, well, yes. It's definitely a programming concept, but really it's a programming concept to help you decode your own movement and also decode the movement of the students that you're working with. So we work a lot with um, what we can, and it's called yoga tune-up. And so right away you're like, oh, it's yoga, but what's that tune-up part? Um, I was very discouraged when I started, when I finally started actually teaching yoga. Um, I, I had had a, a movement background that was not just yoga. I'd had a bodywork background, a dance background, and uh, my father was a doctor, so I was always interested in body parts and making sure that I had as much anatomical knowledge as I could. But I, I loved the yoga that just let me sort of escape into maybe fantasy and mysticism and myth. But when I actually started teaching and I started, so, you know, I would call it a pose and people would just have a 
crash, a catastrophe in their ability to perform a pose, I was, um, I was stymied as a teacher that the form was, well, the architectural forms of yoga poses, I didn't think really suited many people. And Mm. I had to help them prime their joints so that they could proprioceive them and uh, be better able to find their way through their own structure in order to try to attempt some ridiculous shape that most people can never (laughs) even um, hope to execute in their bodies. And so I became much more interested about massively regressing and disassembling movement and teaching people about their component parts uh, and then integrating them together. So tuning up these individual parts so that you can play a symphony. And it really didn't matter what we were doing, whether the, whether the peak pose was something like downward dog or the peak pose was just standing or the peak pose was Shavasana. Um, whatever journey we took to get there was playful. It was challenging and it made you have to think your way through your structure as well as feel your way through it. So I came up with this name Yoga Tune-Up because it was not what I was told to teach. It was not the programming concept that I had been given my, my quote-unquote cert in. And, um, you know, I got lots of calls from management when I started teaching. They're like, well, you can't teach that. That's not blankety-blank yoga. And eventually I left that studio, and I, I just rented a martial arts studio, lost a lot of money, um, was basically paying the students to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and then sort of turned around and, um, and was able to build a business on, on sort of dis- disrupting the mode of, of yoga class. And this was more than a decade ago in Santa Monica where the, the flow scene was it. I mean, that was it. Mm-hmm. And if you mm-hmm. weren't a flow and go kind of person, um, you were, <laughs> you were not cool. That's for sure. But that was okay. I was, I was okay with that because I really wanted people to be healthy. And I'd had a lot of instruction prior to moving out to Los Angeles, which is a much longer story. But I'd had a, some excellent instruction from the man who is my mentor, his name is Glenn Black, in hands-on bodywork, movement, yoga, meditation for years before I set foot in Los Angeles. And I was enchanted with the flow scene and the Ashtanga scene when I moved here. I just couldn't believe it. I'd never done yoga that looked so dancey. As a dancer, it was like, oh, my God, yoga can be this dance. Um, but it, it, even though I could, quote, unquote, do it, it wasn't necessarily the best thing for my own structure, which years later mm-hmm. um, I, I uh, had a hip replacement, which I much of it I attribute to sort of reckless practices during that time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think that's something uh, we're gonna we're gonna dive into. I have to say that you know, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast. Each guest, uh, and I was inspired by Jenna Safino, so I'll just give her some credit. But each guest, before we do our interviews, they fill out a questionnaire. And Jill, I have to say that yours was one of the most interesting, um, just because, well, for lots of reasons, but. Um, <laughs> there's something that you say at the very end in terms of your relationship to Pilates, and I and I want to dig into that in in regards to your hip replacement and that whole experience. Um, 
And and what's my point? I'm not really sure. I mean, we could just do that now. Why don't we just sure. do that now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're doing that now. <laughs> because maybe I had something else brilliant I was going to ask, but it's gone. <laughs> um, so you have practiced Pilates. You practiced many years ago. And, and here's just the line I want to share because I think it's so um, – uh, it's so relevant, it's so common, it's so human, it's so interesting, which is um, that you, you hadn't been doing Pilates for a very, very long time and you had a total hip replacement. And you started Pilates again because you were told to by your PT. And yeah. I'm, I'm curious, I mean, we obviously we get so many students who, and you I'm sure as well, right, are you are receiving students and engaging in uh, uh, practice with them because they have been told to come to you. Um, so, so what was that like? I mean, were you were you open to that? Were you amiable to that? Was were you like, yep, I'll do whatever? Um, what was that? What was your experience like after the surgery and moving into Pilates? Uh, when I this is a a great question. It's something I never get to talk about. I was so excited to talk to a Pilates podcast. I've never talked to a Pilates <laughs> podcast in the in all the years of podcasts that I've done. So this is so exciting for me because I can now like uh, reflect on my Pilates history, my Pilates present, and Pilates future. I yeah. took. I was you know I was in I was in performance studies at Northwestern in the late 80s, early 90s, and we had a gifted ballet teacher on staff named Juanita Lopez, who was also um, a student of Romana's, and she started teaching a Pilates mat class. Nobody had ever heard of that. None, not a single one of the students had ever heard of Pilates, so it was like really cool. It was going to be this new thing, and it, it had a really strange name, and my actually mm-hmm. my roommate who was pre-med I managed to get her in which is like you couldn't do that you couldn't be outside of the dance department and get in so uh, it was so much fun that I was able to do this with my roommate Vita and we had to buy these special maths Freelonic Freelonic maths or something like that and we learned the math series and we did it twice a week every semester and I, I, I hated it I mean I loved it but I hated it and Vita would always Sounds complain. Familiar. Yeah. I mean, it was the same thing every time. It was the same kind of cueing. It was just remarkably uninspiring to me. But I was <laughs> very disciplined. And so I also loved regiments. And mm. um, I would find myself doing the Pilates, uh, the math sequence that Juanita t- taught us, you know, on my own as well just like I would do yoga asana on my own, um, not have to be around a teacher to do it. So that just gives you a hint of like kind of my mindset. Like you just, this is what you have to do in order to be a successful dancer and in order to be a healthy dancer. Um, but mm. I would never, I would never get sore. Like I would never get sore in my abs. And Bita was always like, Oh, I'm so sore. And what I what I realized many years later is one of the reasons why I was not sore in my abs when I should have been if I was using and engaging myself properly is I was also struggling with bulimia in college. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I had this eating disorder that was this just giant dark hole. 
of connection inside my body. And so, of course, I was, I was bypassing it and, you know, using my hip flexors, using my shoulders, doing everything but using my abs correctly. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that was something that, you know, years later I were like, well, why did I stop doing Pilates? Um, because I certainly did a lot of other, you know, ab based stuff, but one of the other reasons why I stopped doing it is after I didn't have the instruction, it didn't hold a sort of a romantic interest for me the way, the way yoga did. Um, and when I, I probably investigated it, but there weren't mat classes like there were in college. There were these apparatus things that were in very exclusive spaces, not easy to find and cost prohibitive to someone who was 21 and just graduated college and like all of a sudden had to earn money for rent. So that was just gone. Like Pilates was vanquished from my, even my, my thoughts for decades because of the cost prohibitiveness. And, um, but it was always, you know, it was always there. Like there was this, you know, the hundred and the leg stretch series and whatever. I can't remember all the names. I should, but I, I have actually kind of a block to remembering the names because I'm doing a lot of Pilates now um, for my rehab. And I keep choosing to let the instructor um, coach me instead of trying to um, have my inner coach doing the work, which is extremely different and new for me. And I, I, I can explain that sort of down the road. Yeah. So I'm, mm-hmm. um, it's been very important in my healing process to go into my uh, right brain and stay there and mm-hmm. stop being the evaluator of movement, stop being mm-hmm. the, the self-coach of movement, but to actually try to process exclusively through feeling. Um, and as a dancer and as an artist, I can do that. I can like, just flip the switch and go there. Um, I can also go totally onto the left brain and be extremely calculated and um, exacting. Um, and then I can blend them. So that's kind of, I think that's one of my own gifts as a, as a mover and a movement pro. And, but I've really let the Pilates part be a, um, find my way in the dark because it really is so different to use springs and to use these different, um, weighted mechanisms that are a part of the different apparatus that you all use. And I just want it to inform me spontaneously rather than needing to own it rather than needing to uh, want to replicate it um, in my own classes or rather than want to um, dissect it like I do with everything else. So it's been interesting. Mm -hmm. I've been letting it be um, this other thing, especially um, because one of the ways that I've seen, um, uh, you know, I've had to relearn to walk. So when you relearn to, when you learn to walk, you don't think about walking. You're not calculating walking. You're not being exacting with your steps. Um, when you relearn to walk, you have to click back into that developmental stage of yourself. And so this has just been like a part of my practice now, which I think is very, very healthy for uh, my psyche and very humbling for my current, you know, 47 years of collection of facts and data and understanding. Mm. It's so, uh, I just think it's so fascinating and so valuable. It's, it, it touches a lot on 
um, some of the main themes of uh, the podcast for James and I that we're kind of always in conversation around. And I think it will be incredibly valuable for the folks that are listening just to to hear that from you uh, as somebody who is, as we all are as teachers, kind of in that, um, or at least I think we're trained to be in that that left brain calculating, analyzing, um, and what it is like and how it can be so meaningful when we are purposeful about, I love what you said. You said something about uh, being, something about like being in the dark, like practicing in the dark, you know, like mm-hmm. just allowing yourself to be in a place of sensing and feeling. And it's interesting to me too, because um, there is a time and place for that, right? You're describing that maybe from a macro view of in your work, like being able to go to just the feeling, sensing aspect of yourself versus the analytical. And I think of it, you know, from a brain-based perspective, like as top-down processing versus bottom-up processing. Mm-hmm. But it is a dance between the two for most of us, I think, even within a, let's just say, a session or a class. Um, and very interesting to just, like, choose choose it all the way um, for what you need. And I, and, and mm-hmm. it's really, you know, I think that's just a powerful, it's a powerful idea to feel like, yes, that's actually what we can do. We can choose that, whether that's how you are choosing to participate in Pilates period, or you're just aware that that's what you need in the moment, um, that it's just, it can be a choice that we make. Although I think most of our students are likely unaware of that, and and that's partly, I think, what James and I are so curious about always is how do we facilitate the awareness of that choice for our students. Absolutely. And here's my perspective, where, where I'm coming from, is I've been a leader in this industry, in the movement industry, for a long time, and I've been a, an educator for decades. Like, since I was a teenager, I started teaching. And so to fully put myself in the seat of a brand new student, like let me sell, let me be a brand new student <laughs> again, please let me just have that innocence and luckily put, and then put myself in the hands of extremely skilled masters because I have a, I have a really good sense of hunching, you know, s- smelling out masters uh, who have fed me my whole life in terms of my movement body. And so I, um, I like to create a sense of deep trust with anybody that coaches me. And I've been very lucky with my, my physical therapist, Lethal McCurdy, um, who is a, a true healer. And she was a Pilates instructor and a dancer before she was a physical therapist. Um, and then Carrie Macy, who is a friend of mine who studied with me for years, and she's the, one of the heads of Pilates at Equinox, which is where I teach once a week. And so um, I take a lesson with her once a week. And, um, you know, and even though I don't, like, <laughs> like, like all the things, <laughs> um, I mean, I do, but, but it's like I just, I just like putting myself as a little lab rat. And, um, and I also trust my body. I trust it so much. And I, I, 
I trust my process of learning. It's led me to amazing things in my life. So just getting back to that little girl who is in that place of new learning, it's so sweet, especially because the rest of my day, the other, the other was a, I don't know how many hours there are every week, but so if I have one hour a week where I'm not the boss, and all the other hours, I'm the boss, and I'm leading other people through movement or I'm leading myself through my own practice. It's so nice to take off that cat and helmet and just allow myself to be the learner. Mm-hmm. So, Jill, it sounds as if it was uh, more or less a conscious decision to put yourself in the role of um, being led in the position of sensing, feeling your way through the practice. Can you talk to me a little bit more about um, uh, why that decision, why that version of the practice, and, uh, and as you go through it, maybe a little bit about, like, how that is informing the teachers. Ah, uh, well, if you look at my Instagram page, <laughs> which is at Yoga Tune Up, the first line on my page is, my body thinks in feels. My body mm-hmm. thinks in feels. Um, and that's as much a reminder to me as it is to all the humans out there that the sensory nerve load in your body is gigantic in terms of your autonomic nervous system. I mean, so much of our existence is reactive to stimuli from the external world, stimuli that is moving our organism or that is, um, helping our our organism organize without us even knowing about it. And this is where I get really heady, James. No, I'm I'm into it. (laughs) You know, they finally have, they, they, those peripheral nerve ending researchers, uh, there's Mm -hmm. new ways of staining now. And they're able to finally count the, the single fibers of sensory versus motor. Like, for example, in the brachial plexus, there was a study out recently, and I got to hope I get my numbers right. I think there's something like 300,000 actual fibers in the brachial plexus, so that's going from the neck down to the fingertips. And 80% of those nerve fibers are sensory, only 20 mm-hmm. are motor. And so when you just think of that, you're like, wait a minute, my body sinks through its feeling system, instead of feeling all the time that, oh, what I'm thinking is wrong, or I need to tell my body what to do. So mm-hmm. I, like to, I like to flip the switch for people and help them grapple with making sense of what they're sensing. And so it's not, it wasn't hard for me to say, well, let me commit to this fully. Let me go 100% or 99% especially with the Pilates, because it is such a novel thing. I'm not going to do Pilates. I don't have the apparatus. I've been doing Pilates-like things, I suppose. I mean, I would I called a bunch of moves that I made up back in the day. I would say, this is poor man's Pilates. And we were sliding on blankets and doing all sorts of, of, fun, of fun movements in the context of yoga classroom that people were like, what is she doing? That's not yoga. It's like, no, that's yoga tune-up. Don't worry. And this is poor man's Pilates inside of yoga tune-up. <laughs> so I was already... I was already you know, um, jarring my, my students and myself through um, interjecting and, you know, disturbing the, the sanctity of, of the, the limited canon of asana um, by throwing in these other things. 
Um, and I think play is a big part of that right brain experience, period. So it's not like that's a new thing for me, but what is new is not, is taking off the evaluator, um, and being willing to, as, um, uh, some would say, you know, to surrender exclusively to the teacher. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, total sense. Total, total, total sense. Um, and that was a little bit on my part of leading the witness because that's sort of um, everything you just said has been a running theme in, uh, in this particular podcast and in my peer group. And um, it's just so refreshing to also hear it come from um, uh, someone whose work is as, uh, as variable and as esteemed as yours and from a different modality than ours. And that therefore there is a universality to that. There's some, there has to be truth in that. If the science world is finding that, if, um, you know, I know a lot of PTs that are finding that, Pilates, yoga, you know, um, the, the list goes on and on that uh, the way in which we introduce movement to people um, maybe isn't as much of a top-down process as a thinking process as what we have been led to believe for okay. decades and decades and decades. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, right. how do kids know how to play? How do babies learn right. how to walk? How do we right. figure out <laughs> how to do anything, right? Like, right. I don't need to be the dictator of how I reach my arm. I just have to understand that I'm reaching my arm for something. Right. Yeah, and the whole development of the role model therapy balls and that whole system was to arouse these different mechanoreceptors in different layers of our structure so that we get that feedback. So the cutaneous Mm -hmm. receptors, the Ruffini endings within the transition zone between the superficial and deep fascia, different different nerves, um, uh, different types of pressure to excite Pacinis, <laughs> the Italians, mm-hmm. the Ruffinis, the Pacinis, the Muscle Spindles, <laughs> the Golgis. I mean, so this has been something that I, you know, absolutely preoccupied with for the last 12 years as I've continued to develop Yoga Tune-Up and our the pedagogy of the program, which has eight different um, training programs that take a look at different body parts or different um, themes within, um, within, within our structure and within our being. So I, I've been talking about proprioception and interoception for a long time. And mm-hmm. it's something I even just take the words for granted now, but I should, you know, I was like, I should have said them uh, eight minutes ago when I was describing um, this, my body thinks and feels concept. And I, I, I do feel, though, like my – I strongly feel like we can do better and we should do better by our students by educating them along the way. So it's, for me, it's not enough to just say, oh, just feel your way into this. I then want to help mm-hmm. people understand what are the feedbacks that – what are the inputs, what's the feedback, what are these – how do we um, link up these connections from bottom up to top down? And then what mm-hmm. might be in the way? What might – be obscuring our ability to cohere, to feel like we're coherent with both flows. So it's all like, it's all really interesting to me because 
when you start to dig into the physiology and start to use that wonderful left brain, <laughs> um, and that to me is really satisfying, and it doesn't just leave me hanging or um, or or sort of like lost in space. That's where I start mm-hmm. to feel really grounded, and um, that is when I start to feel you know ownership. But that that being said, I have put the Pilates into this little pocket of this little private pocket in my life mm-hmm. for now. How has that changed your view of what Pilates is going from your original experience um, at Northwestern to how you are utilizing it now? Um, I, for me, it's just one more uh, stimulus, especially for my hip and my whole body integration. I also do stuff that I would have never done prior. I will just be walking down the street and all of a sudden I'll explode into a run a ferocious run, Mm -hmm. and then I'll stop, and then I'll just keep walking and shopping. So I like to try to jar my – to challenge my hip because literally at three months, my surgeon, who's fantastic, um, and gave me a surgery that I'll never need a revision and that comes with no precautions, said, all right, just have to challenge it. You just have to Mm -hmm. challenge it. And that was reiterated by my physical therapist who made me do uncomfortable things like run up a hill fast. (laughs) Um, So I, I look, I don't do this regularly, but a a few times a week, I'm sure to remind myself like you need to explode right now. And I mean, exploding Mm -hmm. from a non warm up, which is like crazy, right? That, Mm -hmm. yes. Um, And so far, guess what? It's been awesome. I'm also doing, about twice a week, once or twice, I'll do about 20 minutes of HIIT. Um, that is not something I would have done pre-hip surgery uh-huh. um, because, again, I need the stimulus. And then I've been exploring, as it looks like everybody in the yoga world has or is with some functional range conditioning stuff, which <laughs> reminds me a lot of my original teacher, Glenn Black, where I all we, we did PNFs until the cows come home. This was... 20 years yeah. ago and the joint articulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you look at it, it's just now been codified, the, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's now a codified thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. God bless them for, for packaging it. It's just like, yeah, Oh yeah. Nice. But I mean, I got, I kind of got all those moves in my original online program that I filmed 12 years ago, but that's okay. Yep. That's okay. But I didn't yep. do it like I they know. did it. That's for sure. <laughs> I did not do it with hundred percent tension and I'm not knocking it. It's been very helpful to um, to do range of motion exercises with 100% attention. That's been really, uh, it's actually been very helpful and interesting yeah. and, again, novel. So what I've discovered is um, any, any, any stimulus, any new thing I do helps my hip. And so I'm just open to, I'm just open to anything and everything. And I think that Pilates is a darn good thing because my teacher uh, Carrie, every week there's something new in there that I haven't met before. Mm-hmm. It's just like expanding the universe, right, very intentionally and purposefully so that you're looking at the little spaces and the big spaces and the dark spaces and the light spaces and, you know, in terms of strength and flexibility. It, it's kind of an exciting place to be, it sounds like. Oh, it's so exciting. It's so much fun. Mm. 
I, I, I haven't been a student of other, like, one-on-one experiences um, in a long time. I mean, I've been very self-directed for a very long time, and the, the, the hip has made me, again, have to put that, that student hat on. But, I, I mean, I can – I'm just so happy I um, sort of gave over to it because I could have just been stubborn and obstinate and you know, thought, I know how to heal this myself. And I did. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, I am healing. Um, but I had to really open up my, my fear bucket because, really, my, my body previously would have told me, that's going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, just running off a curb, that seems really stupid. It was right. It would have hurt me. It doesn't hurt me anymore. That's interesting. So is it simply that you trust and believe the fact that you now have a new hip and you have no precautions and you're just like, yep, I believe that, I trust that, and so your mindset has like been able to change so willingly or has there been also a different kind of shift or maybe even it's a parallel slash simultaneous shift in your perspective, finding yourself even in the need of something like a hip replacement. I'm I'm curious about that shift because mm-hmm. I think our students are very stuck often, right, in believing something about their body, particularly uh, based on pain or fear or, um, you know, something that somebody told them once. Um, but as teachers, too, we are stuck in believing, like, that this is the way it's done and this is what is safe and appropriate and these other things are not okay. So can you... You know, okay, so first I want to say a couple things about the hip replacement because probably your, probably some of your listeners are wondering, well, why are you talking about the hip replacement? So I have a cam deformation, a slight cam deformation, which means that the head of the femur is not a perfect sphere. And so if the head of the femur is not a perfect sphere, eventually you're going to really run into yourself, um, you know, wear mm-hmm. down cartilage. And um, I don't know if I was born that way or if I deformed myself through a number of ankle sprains uh, as a teen and in early college, damaging my foot dancing, um, if that created a new walk and that I created the cam or that I was born with the cam. We'll never know. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, the my choice of movement practice was yoga, and I mean long-held stretches for long periods of time, almost identical routine um, almost every day. So I really had taken my connective tissues to the brink and bypassed what would be a uh, a healthy range. I went well beyond my range because I had stretched myself to that point and I had numbed myself mm-hmm. to the feedback that said that this was dangerous. Um, and so that's a whole other story of how I was able to numb right. myself. It wasn't through drugs, but it was through my inner pharmacy, through um, relaxation techniques or mindset techniques that um, actually functionally shut down some of my, my pain feedback. Um, so I was a, when I mentioned I was bulimic, Really what happened in tandem with that is that I became a movement. Um, um, I, my yoga practice is what soothes me. So my yoga practice ultimately helped me um, heal my bulimia, 
but it was my, it was my crutch. So I didn't necessarily replace one addiction with another, um, until it started to harm me. I would wake up in the morning and this is right after I moved to LA and I was doing Ashtanga. I couldn't straighten my legs in the morning. I'd walk to the bathroom, um, bent over. My knees would not extend. They were so fatigued from the previous days, jumping out of lotus poses in, in, in the Ashtanga room. Um, and eventually I changed my mode of practice and that's a whole other, like a whole other story, but I just want your listeners to know that, you know, I, I both built this city by overstretching. Um, and then mm-hmm. once I realized what I was doing to myself, I changed um, the way I was working. And that's how I came up with yoga tune-up is I wanted mm-hmm. to figure out what the heck I was doing, what, why I was feeling so crappy, you know, at age 29, 30, 31, like why I felt like a, a broken old woman. And, and I, just dug back into my original training. I started going to anatomy labs um, and studying massage again and rebuilt myself. So I didn't have pain. Things were great. And there there was nothing wrong with my hip. I had no idea until I would start to get an infrequent spasm in my tensor fascia lata, which is a a, a sister of hip flexion, little petite muscle that ends up being the anterior portion of your iliotibial band. So I would get this infrequent spasm in my left TFL. I could always get rid of it, but it would come back. And eventually when I, I thought, well, maybe I have a torn labrum. So that's what I really thought. So when I finally had an MRI to look for the torn labrum, they were like, what labrum? <laughs> There's no labrum there. Uh, that was fun. And um, when I have I this surgeon, fear that that's going to be me one day. <laughs> Oh, honey. Sorry. When I I saw my surgeon for the first time, he walked into the room and just said five words to me. So what do you want to schedule? He hadn't even checked my hip. He had just, he saw the x-ray. He didn't need to see anything else. And then, um, and then he tested my hips. So he did an orthopedic test where they just basically do circumduction. And he was like, ah, well, there's your pre-existing condition. And what he meant by that was my range of motion. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So, um, but I, but again, I was not walking around at that point. I was not walking around like I was, um, crippled in pain. Like I was when I was practicing Ashtanga in my twenties, because all the practices that I created with yoga tune up and role model are pain mitigators. So I was moving really well, at least I thought and living really well, but, but there were movements I was avoiding. I would, I would like, I wouldn't go to a, you know, a hit class or I would not, um, I would not trust myself to be sitting in an airplane seat, you know, for six hours without getting up a few times. Um, I would fear that that the TFL will go into spasm. Um, so I totally can't remember the question anymore. Cause I just wanted to give some background on, <laughs> on, on the hip and why I finally went in to get an MRI at age 45. Yeah. Well, we were talking, you were talking about mindset while I was asking you a question about a mindset shift, you're, you're talking about these kind of spontaneous ah, non warm up yeah. yeah. bursts. And yeah. you said you would never have done that. And what yeah. I, what I read between the lines was potentially because you thought it would be dangerous or it would not, it would hurt you. Yes. So what, Some what part of is me knew it was dangerous for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. So what what's interesting is when I was when I was dancing when I was I was dancing I was a modern dancer and I, I did not earn enough money as a modern dancer to say I was a, a dancer, but I like to say it because I, I did. I had a dance theater company in Chicago right after I graduated college, and we did crazy stuff, and I was, like, doing Buteau. I mean, we would do stuff that was so insane and distorted and high impact and rolling and aggressive and jumps off the stage and riot girls. Like, we were, like, crazy, and none of that stuff ever, like, I didn't give a second thought to it, but that that person, that spontaneous major is still in me. Um, but I was just much more conservative in, you know, like in my forties about it than I had been in, you know, like my teens, my twenties, my thirties. So I have kids. I like you talked about before we got on the podcast and there is no fear with the way those kids move. I am terrified when my daughter runs because she leans at such an angle. You're like that. She is going to wipe out. That jaw is going to go. <laughs> but that's just, that's how you run. You fall, you fall and you catch yourself. And, but I don't mean fall. Like she's not falling her, you know, she's letting gravity take her for a ride and she's just catching up with it all the time. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. to be able to get back to that part of me who used to throw their bodies around on stage and wrestle with mostly other women because it was a, an all girls, um, you know, dance troupe. So it's like, I, w- I missed that. I missed being able to have that. And not that that's what I'm going to do again. Cause I'm look, I was like, I want to keep my knees for the rest of my life too. And my neck, but that kind of, um, that who that's inside of me, that playful person, um, had to, I mean, I took my play into other areas. I took my play into writing. I took my play into, um, having my students sing while we're, while we're doing movement. So like there are other parts of the play, but I definitely miss that primal, um, uh, thing. So, uh, I guess part of the mindset shift is letting that come back into my life and, um, and, and fostering that in a safe way for the students that I teach and the teachers that I train um, and the programming that we have so that people feel really safe in their creativity, you know, and letting it be a healing thing for them. There's nothing worse mm-hmm. than having that taken away from you. So let's talk about safety a little bit because I feel like this is maybe the container um, inside which you were able to make the mindset shift. And I think that in, in working with students, we do this in a couple of ways, right? We do it, uh, through the way that we communicate. We do it through, um, the way that we create the physical environment, um, the very specifically the language and words that we use, the expectations that we set up and that we're explicit about, like all of those things, right? Kind of interacting and dialoguing. But what, what about the work specifically, the role model work, the release work with the, um, like the yoga tune-up balls and also within the role model work, Jill, what, what about that do you feel like facilitates a sense of, um, trust? in the body so that students are not only getting it from the relational and intellectual perspective, this sense of safety or, or a very clear container for um, shifting mindset potentially and also just opening up to 
new movement potential, um, but in the body, like, is there, do, do you see a correlation? Do you, I mean, is that intentional or wh- what is that like in terms of the work physically? Yeah, I think I have a bias about um, self-knowledge and a big part of my bias is that I feel like you have the right to know yourself through your own flesh. Um, it's better for you to know and perceive your own sensations so that somebody else's diagnosis doesn't draw a big um, dark marker around different parts of your body that you never got to know and you never got to experience um, the sensations from them at every level. So um, that is, you know, that's definitely my body bias. I don't, I don't think that, you know, you can't really outthink the experience that your own tissues have. So the therapy balls, like I said earlier, light up the sensory perception of these different areas. And when they light up your sensory system, it also upregulates your motor system. And so you are able to then ultimately over time and with, you know, lots of, of um, experimentation to activate those areas that we call yoga tuna body blind spots, um, areas of overuse, underuse, misuse, abuse, or confuse or body confusion. So I feel that the therapy balls give you an opportunity to what I call the embody map. They help you to create an embody map so that you're having an experience of yourself from within yourself that's self-directed. And it's very, very empowering. And the more you get to know yourself, the more you can trust the different um, signals that your body is giving you. They don't freak you out so much. So it's like you can feel the, the different ranges of, let's call it pain or discomfort in your body and, and be able to know, oh, you know what? That's muscle overtension. That's, you know, my muscle in an overtensioned state, uh, like a trigger point, let's say, or, oh, that's the sensation of mm, connective tissue ripping. That's a bummer. Or, ah, that's a nerve that's freaking out. So you can start to distinguish different signals from yourself. And that happens over time. But if you're not the one going in there, uh, it's, um, it's an outside-in experience. It's better you having your sort of inside-in experience, I feel, than somebody else being that person for you. Now, I was way off about my hip. I had been blinded to my own pain, uh, or let's say that the owie pain was not the biggest thing that I was living with. There are people with way, uh, way less degeneration that I had that walked around crippled, um, you know, with a cane or crutches before they went into surgery and were, uh, you know, having to take painkillers to be able to get through their day. That was not the case for me. Um, so things are so relative from person to person and, you know, a body's own interpretation of its, um, its pathology and um, degradation. So that, there was one other thing I wanted to say about, yeah, and so the other thing about your question is with these tools and with the, the way that I hold a classroom environment or host a classroom environment is I'm basically the macro host, and then I, I create suggestions for students to become a pioneer and, a, you know, to become, to be willing to be a pioneer. And 
there are really five different um, gateways that need to be met for the classroom to be a safe place for students to um, feel like they can foster this parasympathetic feedback because so much of it is done in the parasympathetic mode of being, um, which is that rest, digest, restoration, regeneration mode um, that's fostered by uh, stimulating vagal tone or by stimulating uh, directly and indirectly uh, different aspects that will bring the, uh, the vagus into a dominant state. Yeah. The James. end of that very long paragraph. Yes. <laughs> No. It's so I have two I have two things but um but and I'm just gonna be kind of a uh bulldozer here and, and then James if you, no, go ahead. I mean James if you have something to say you have, you have no, to wait. Go, go, go ahead. Um it, it's so it's so great uh and interesting to me to hear um you talk about your work um in a way that is so very similar from a, a coaching, um, just the, the kind of philosophy of teaching and being with people is is so similar to the work that James and I are very explicitly doing and teaching. And, and for me, I mean, it is, this is primarily, uh, at least it's the priority for me in teaching teachers to how to teach, not to teach repertoire or learn the repertoire necessarily, although that's a piece of it, but rather how to be in relationship with the work and with their students. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's so wonderful to hear, and I don't think it's uncommon, but I think we're we're just really beginning to talk about it more explicitly as something that we can actually teach teachers to do and a mm-hmm. way of being. Uh, that is parallel to the actual methodology. And so that's, that's really wonderful. And to hear it in this realm of yoga and it's like, I think that yoga brings a, you know, there's a level of mindfulness that is built in, not always, obviously, um, that, that maybe sometimes we just assume that this kind of holding space and teaching is being done, but I don't actually think that that's true. So it's, it's just really wonderful to hear. And I, and I, um, I'm excited about that, I suppose, is my point. Um, the other thing that I wanted to just maybe play devil's advocate a bit with is that you said you can't outthink the feeling body. And I'm kind of paraphrasing, but there was something about not being able to outthink like the sensation, like the information that you're getting from within yourself. And, and I'm not sure that that's true in my experience. I think a lot of students have taught themselves out of um, a way of desensitizing themselves, right, and protecting themselves. They have outfought their physical feeling experience. And uh, we all yeah. know where that, we all know where that leads. But when you were working with a student who um, ha- is in that situation where they just have completely overridden their feeling sense because they don't trust their body and they, they overthink everything. And, and, mm-hmm. and to me as an example, like it's the classical, like, I don't feel that. I don't, I don't feel that. I don't know what you're talking about. And then there's mm-hmm. like a bit of defensiveness and resistance. Mm-hmm. What, how, how do you handle that? And 
not just from a coaching perspective, you know, or a language perspective, but from like, how is the work that you do specifically uh, supporting shifting that for students? Mm -hmm. Oh, great question. Well, I, I am, I'm always going to trust their feedback perception. Um, Nerve endings can be dormant. (laughs) <laughs> and not give you that information. Um, they can be embroiled in very old uh, and not very mobile fascial tissue, and so they are not um, nutrition, nutritiously uh, fed well. And so when I have a student that, quote-unquote, doesn't feel it, I trust what they're saying. And I can always use, let's say, a different technique with the therapy balls, but I also know that um, peripheral nerve endings, they regrow, and eventually they do spring to life, and so it just needs repetition. And it also needs trickery from me um, the next time I work with that student to potentially um, do the same thing, but from a very different, sneaky um, way in or, you know, by using a different type of rolling technique. So we have nine different techniques in the role model that vary from like just simply rolling up and down along the line of pull or across the line of pull, um, or being perfectly still. We have four different balls, so I could use a different ball stimulus. Um, it just depends on like what the thing is that we're getting after, but I've certainly worked with people who are, um, intensely numb and, either from a, an actual, you know, disease condition or because their, their mind just doesn't want to go there, like you were saying, trying, they were out thinking their own um, feeling. But I just hold this place of trust. I don't care if it takes nine years. I mean, I've definitely been with people where, you know, like eight years later, they're like, oh, my God, I can feel it. I have, I have all the time in the world. And um, I, just, I just support my people in their process. And I trust that what they're feeling is true because, um, you know, fighting someone's own resistance only creates more resistance. And especially if I want to retain that client or that student, I just want to hold a party for them every time I work with them. And that doesn't mean that we're like rah, rah. I mean, sometimes the party is a cry party. Other times the party is a, um, we're, we're building models with the balls or, um, or instead we'll just do an hour of breath work instead of doing activations or, or what have you. So the really long answer to your question is um, if I want to, if I want to build body trust in my own students, um, I have to take them at their word and also know that their biology is adapting, that whatever we just did, even though they don't believe it and they can't feel it, I know that we just stimulated them. And it may take time for those branches of the central office to actually perceive what just happened. I'm cool with that. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, it brings up sort of the conversation we started off with today on um, gardening. And, you know, I think so much of, of movement teaching is teaching a movement, right? Like, here's this asana or here's this Pilates movement. And repetition, repetition, the priority is on getting this right or doing this thing. And with sort of facilitating and um, coaching experience and uh, creating a safe space to feel again, what you're actually doing is tending the soil. 
Mm-hmm. And you know, especially mm-hmm. with with something like the with uh, like the yoga tune-up balls or any priming movement, or um, uh, really conscious dialoguing, or just a even a physical space that feels safe, you're actually um, creating the space in the fossil system, the fluid body, to feel again. It's rehydrating, and so that's what allows those peripheral nerves to grow and to be able to. Um, appropriocept and sense. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there is this um, uh, understanding and in, in, uh, in what I'm hearing you say on the priority being the soil tending or the caretaking of the experience in the body rather than getting something, rather than the movement itself so that the movement can become an expression of what you're sensing and feeling. You know, here's this mm-hmm. movement that I'm asking mm-hmm. to do this asana and what it looks like is a representation of how I feel within said asana or within said teaser, plank, deadlift, whatever whatever the modality is. And also um, uh, getting back to something you said, Chantel, about people not trusting their body, I think it's an even bigger conversation than that. I think the thing is that people don't Mm -hmm. trust their experience. And right. so, mm-hmm. which is a deeper conversation than the body, right? And yeah. mm-hmm. I think it's even more so because of all the traumas and um, life we have behind us where you felt one way and then the world or uh, the outside experience didn't match that. You know, I felt good about getting a B and I go home and my mom and dad said, why didn't you get an A? You know, mm-hmm. or I knew that this wasn't, this thing didn't feel good in my body, but my movement teacher said, do it more. And so I have learned as a mover not to trust my experience and therefore outsource it to someone else that I'm putting in charge out there. Mm -hmm. And that is different than what, uh, and so I want, there's a distinction there. And what Jill was saying earlier about um, making herself available to feel and to uh, to sensate her way through the movement, guided by her teacher, that is not. Uh, the, there's a distinction there that that's not being teacher tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's 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 the thing. And uh, I think when people hear that conversation, it's like, well, I don't know how to feel, or what happens when my teacher or when my student doesn't feel something. It's like, well, they just don't understand that their experience is this and not that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I put it into, I, I actually sell process-based work rather than mm-hmm. results-based work. And yeah. that's, like, not very sexy. Like, wh- what do you teach? Um, well, you're going to kind of step into this process of uh, <laughs> embodiment here. And, uh, yeah, you, you want to lose weight? Nah. I'll refer you to my friends. They like to talk about that. But I'm not results-based or results-oriented, but I certainly have billions, not billions, I've got thousands of testimonials of people who've gotten results from entering into a process with themselves. And especially people um, who are on in some degree of recovery from a past Mm -hmm. trauma or Mm -hmm. addiction, like this is such a great place to, to be. Well, I think uh, it also, there's a misunderstanding about what exercise is and about what our roles as exercise teachers is. 
you know, people are not confused when they go to their art teacher. You know, it's not they don't go and say, um, you know, I, I'm here to I'm here to do that one Picasso thing. You know, I'm here to do my masterpiece. My yeah. Yeah. You know, or when I go yeah. to my piano teacher and I'm like, I've never played before. I want I'm here to play Chopin. <laughs> Or my, you know, my sensei at the dojo, right? I don't walk in and go, I want to do that black belt move. There is a distinct understanding that I'm here to to learn, to be in process, to experience, that there's stages and that I'm going to get more wrong than I am right when I'm first learning. Mm -hmm. And that eventually, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to study the works of Picasso. I'm going to study the Bruce Lee Kung Fu thing. I'm going to do that. But what what I choose to do with that is going to look very different than what other people have done with it. And we're not confused about that in other forms of, um, in other crafts. But mm-hmm. for some reason in exercise, it's just this, um, uh, I'm here to do this thing. And it's, yeah. it's not, you know, it's, it's uh, a cultural misunderstanding of what is exercise and what is well, I think- as exercise teachers. Mhm, mhm, yeah, I think it's just that I mean my sense of it, and I think you're right on James is that just that exercise is a thing that is it, it's just like it is the thing that we created that is not about learning, it is about just doing the thing that's it for one specific mm-hmm. reason like that's that's it, like that's what we think exercise is because that is what exercise is. I think the misunderstanding mm-hmm. is that. We think that Pilates and yoga is exercise. You know, it's like we now have these models and these modalities that are way far outside of the realm of exercise, except we don't really, and and obviously this is not totally true, but for the large, like the general population, it is the container with which we are most familiar. So that's the one we put it in. And I think that that is, Right, that's the confusion. Is that this work that we're talking about is not actually exercise? It's something different. Well, and even if it was just exercise, you know, that's uh, it's uh, that would attribute the idea that the body is just something to be moved, you know, rather than something to experience um, the physical world, the emotional world. By you know it's something it's mm-hmm. that uh Cartesian model again, right of here is this thing I have to tame and tinker with in order to in order that my brain and my spirit can go forth doing the work that it needs to do mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. my I'm sure you're from, familiar with my friend Katie Bowman of nutritious movement mm-hmm. so of course, who isn't yeah so um, <laughs> yeah, Katie and i Katie, Katie and I taught a program together um in February at 1440 on dynamic aging with or without joint replacements. And we're, we've got a program we're going to be launching next year together. Um, but, you know, in her, her model, I mean, her, I mean, first of all, she's one of the greatest movement philosophers on the planet. So if you don't know her, please go and just go to her website, start ordering her books. Um, but, you know, she is a, a movement like her whole theory on exercise, not theory, the way she describes, you know, how we use exercise to be this like a pill um, and that our removal from our sort of our, our original 
purpose of being a biological creature on the planet, you know, I mean, we are just so at odds with our own um, evolutionary standing. But what I would like, what I do want to say about exercise, because I do love exercise. I do love the discipline of compressing 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour or maybe three hours or maybe eight hours if it's a training where you're concentrating all of your attention on this thing, which is, which is you and your biological adaptation ability, right? Which is what any exercise, any novel stimulus should allow your body to continue to adapt and help you to really live better in this home of yours. Mm-hmm. So as a, as a person who is, you know, super right brain and brain, I love class. I love going to class. I love making my own class for myself. I love, um, going and teaching class because I love the myopicness of the, of the, of the, of the exercise class container. However, that's such a new thing. Like 900 years ago, we didn't have those classes because we were building buildings, digging wells, right. <laughs> you know, like, so that's what's like, it's like, oh, it's this new fascinating area of study and research and, um, and interest that we, w- we wouldn't have need because also we would have been dying by age 45, 800, 900 years ago. We're lucky to be here, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Having this podcast together, talking about <laughs> and whether it's exercise or not exercise or whatever. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's good. All right. Well, I am curious to kind of circle back to something that you said uh, a bit ago around the vagus nerve. And I'm curious to know, Jill, if, like, at what point did you become aware that the vagus nerve was important and you could actually affect it through movement? And, and how are you teaching to that explicitly now, or are you? Um, I think just in my basic anatomy studies, I was familiar with the autonomic nervous system. Um, and like most people, I was familiar with the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And in my uh, 20s, when I was researching, really it was about researching my own disease, the, my bulimia, um, I came across, I guess in my late 20s, I came across the, the work of Dr. Michael Gershon and his findings on the enteric nervous system. And that was the first time I ever learned anything about the vagus nerve and that the vagus was exclusively responsible for your digestion. Um, and mm-hmm. so I knew there must be a link for myself in the erraticness that I, I created with my disease and this relationship to my nervous system, you know, the feedback that my organs must be giving to my brain via the vagus. So this was something that was a quest and an inquiry for me a long time ago. Um, and I started teaching these workshops called Core Integration, A Total Abdominal Awakening, where we did abdominal massage. I'd been doing abdominal massage in myself um, since I was 19 or 20 because a yoga teacher told me to do that to help me with my, with my bulimia. And so just like swirling all this stuff together um, and then taking a big giant leap, about five years ago, I launched a course called the Breath and Bliss Immersion, uh, which is one of the eight, eight, eight teacher training programs that I lead in the Tune-Up Fitness umbrella. 
And one of my students, his name is Dr. Chris Walling, now Dr. Chris Walling, he wasn't a doctor yet, but he's a doctor of psychotherapy and is the uh, president of the United States Association of Body Psychotherapists. So he's a, you know, a body-based psychotherapist. He pulled me aside mm-hmm. after my, my launch of this immersion five years ago, and he said, I need to talk to you about something called the polyvagal theory and Dr. Stephen Porges. And mm-hmm. so um, five years ago, I just, I remember the coffee shop we were at. I remember, it was just one of those moments where you were like, oh, okay, I'm about to rewrite yeah. my whole world right now. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I've been digging into Porges' work ever since then and was really lucky to present at a conference last November where he was presenting and I got to present on the diaphragm. And I got to sit behind him after his keynote, give him my gorgeous ball, which I scratched out and wrote Porges on because it sounds alike, <laughs> and um, have a picture of him holding it <laughs> while he was watching another lecture. So um, anyway, this is, I'm, I'm assuming that your listeners are familiar with polyvagal theory just based on the way we've been talking. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, being aware of the different phases of uh, engagement, essentially, of, of the body, different access points to stimulate the essentially what we want is a rest, digest, recovery, regeneration response um, of the vagus rather than its detection of threat and shutting us down. So you entered into this kind of world of the vagus nerve and the polyvagal theory. Well, the vagus nerve first through your own experience through bulimia, it sounds like primarily, and you were kind of moving in that direction maybe without really knowing you were moving in the direction of more of what the polyvagal theory is talking about. And so once once you were more fully introduced to that, how did how did your work change, and and what are you currently doing, like in your work that mm-hmm. teaches to that idea specifically, or or are you, or do you feel like you're just, you know, you're you're nudging what you do in that direction in a more subtle way, or are you teaching to that in a direct way, and and what's that to what end for you? Uh, well, everything you just said, so it. It was a very, very clear um, overlap for me because I've been talking about the three zones of respiration for years. So we have this abdominal zone, which is subdiaphragmatic. We have a thoracic zone, which is supradiaphragmatic. And then we have a clavicular zone of respiration, which is supraclavicular. And it just so happens that when you map the um, map Vegas, there are these wonderful overlaps with these respiratory zones and um, the different branches of the vagus and its uh, richness of myelination or demyelination. And so I actually created a graphic along with my, with my company, with my graphic designer recently that I put up on Instagram that um, is beautiful because I've been drawing this really poorly in my breath and bliss immersion for the last few years of trying to show people this overlap between uh, zones of respiration and vagal and sort of vagal dominance. And it starts to make a lot more sense for people when they're stimulating themselves in these different regions, what, um, what the effect is going to be on the autonomic nervous system or that, you know, sort of really we're looking for a favorable um, sense of resilience 
in mm-hmm. in the body with any of these. So I'm not trying to 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 drive people into a, a shutdown experience. Although, right, depending on somebody's embodied history, you know, anything that you are playing around with in a laboratory of a classroom um, is going to stimulate people's responses in in many different ways. So some people, right. the mm-hmm. What one of the challenges with the breath and bliss immersion that uh, sort of people willingly come into is that they're going to go into an endurance marathon of parasympathetic activity. So mm-hmm. you know, most of us, I mean, most of our day is spent in a sympathetic mode or, or blended sympathetic mode, and that resting time in shavasana is a parasympathetic state. Hopefully, your sleep is full of parasympathetic. Um, dominant deep sleep, although a Mm. lot of us aren't, you know, grinding our teeth or, you know, flipping or having light sleep, lots of sleep disturbances. Uh, I have toddlers, so I have lots of sleep disturbances. My sleep is not as deep as it used to be. Um, But in the the coursework with Breast of Bliss Immersion, we introduce people into uh, a sustained uh, presence in that parasympathetic zone, and but we do we pop out of it. We have lots of different ways that we go into the ventral vagal, um, ventral vagal dominance, where we have dyads and triads and quads, so that we interface with each other and communicate or play games. Um, but this is really about um, tempering your resilience, um, particularly into being able to sustain um, your presence and attention in a very, very um, deep place of being led into this sort of dorsal vagal um, place, uh, you know, akin to being, you know, held by a mother for mm. hours on end. I mean, as a, as a mother, I'm, I was so lucky to come across polyvagal theory moments after becoming a new mother and it really helped me to understand my own um, self-control or where I was at within those three zones, whether I was in a sympathetic or ventral vagal or dorsal vagal or what blended state I was in, and I teach this. So I may sound a little fuzzy right now, but um, this is a model that I think all educators should become familiar with and mm-hmm. all parents should become familiar with and furthermore, all humans. Yeah, all humans, right. Yeah, because right. it's not just, yeah. you know, there's, there's a lot in it that explains your own physiology and then you don't feel so um, victimized by your own thoughts or your own feelings. And mm-hmm. that for me has just been such a relief. Mhm mhm mhm. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it is a big topic for James and I particularly. We've been presenting a lot uh of our movement work based on the vagus nerve and the polyvagal theory. So the audience listening has definitely been exposed to that in a variety of ways. And it's always the most fascinating thing to me is that we can affect change in our psychology so directly through our physiology and through very specific movement uh, yeah. techniques and, and movements. And I think it's uh, it's probably one of the most powerful things that I have come across in terms of um, 
why movement is valuable beyond the things that we already know, you know, physiologically. Um, yeah, I, one of my students, like recently, uh, she is from, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the city in Connecticut. It's where they had a mass shooting, um, five years ago. And one of the things she does is she works with families who victims and, I know that she uses the techniques that she's learned in the Breath and Bliss Immersion. Uh, I have another student who was recently down in Costa Rica working in the red light district with um, young women who were kidnapped and sold into prostitution using these techniques. Um, refugees in Greece or from Syria. We had a, a woman, one of our teachers, go to Greece to work with Syrian refugees. So I know that um, these self-touch, self-led, um, hands-off massage strategies, breath strategies, positional strategies, um, definitely help people, uh, provide them with n- new ways of accessing what's already there. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. this is already in you. Like, this is your pharmacy, right. but it's like you didn't know you could write your own prescription. And so mm-hmm. that that's very empowering to have that yeah. Um, that knowledge of how to, um, what I call turn on your off switch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And also I feel like understanding the, the unconscious reactivity that we experience in the body that is trauma based without needing to understand in words what the story is, right. Or, mm-hmm. or retracing the, the trauma in with language, which I just feel so grateful that, that, you know, we're moving, obviously this is not new when we've been working with somatic therapy and psychotherapy for a really long time, but to bring access to people who are primarily movement educators and therapists, you know, it just feels like such a, it's just such a powerful thing. So I'm always just really excited to talk about it and, and, happy to be having this as a part of our conversation. Um, The other question that James and I were kind of percolating on was regarding the, your hip surgery and how you feel like, and we've kind of been, I feel like tangentially, we've talked about it a fair bit, but specifically, how do you feel like it is influencing your teaching in this moment? And specifically maybe regarding through working with the trauma, um, of the surgery? Um, um, I love this question because I'm, I'm definitely a different, first of all, I'm a different teacher since I became a mother. Like that was, that was a big shift. Um, Mm -hmm. and then becoming a, you know, a robot (laughs) also, also changed me. Um, boy, my compassion levels, uh, are just like, I feel like they're at 99.9%. I just have so much more understanding. I mean, I'd been through major things before, um, but I feel that the the change in my teaching post surgery is I don't have I don't have as much um, I don't get through as much material anymore. I've always overwritten my syllabi, always. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I teach much more slowly than I used to. And I've been accused of being a fire hose, still accused of being a fire hose. Sure. But <laughs> I, just, I, 
I think that the my urgency my urgency has not changed. I have a, a deep urgency in me to communicate um, the principles that I want to share with my students. I just do them a little bit more slowly. My I feel that my um, I'm able to edit out. I mean, it's like I've like that's the thing. The teacher like everything I say is essential, but I'm much better at editing out things that are non-essential uh, for the moment, and um, I'm more okay with having left things off the table. And why is why is that? Do you think like what's the new filter? What's the new like epiphany or recognition that it like a little bit maybe goes a long way or a little bit of the right thing does everything it needs to do in the moment? Like what? Well, I think it's very polyvagal. I think I'm sensing my students' tolerance, their capacity mm-hmm. for the material or for you know, the moment that we've created together, I'm just, I think I'm just even a better sensor of that, that threshold. And no, also, I, I think I know how to change the channel and give them, um, give them moments of release. And I don't mean by like, oh, now let's move on to another, like, let's move on to another ball. But it's like, let's um, change the mode of our classroom space. Let's mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. open the windows, play some music, um, take a little miniature walk around the mat. You're literally like changing the mode. So I've always mm-hmm. been a very playful teacher, but I, I think I'm, I'm less like, you have to stay here for 90 minutes. There's no, no, you cannot leave. Like I wasn't, I'm intense. I'm an intense teacher. So I just think that I'm better able to sense my, my, my students' needs better than I did mm-hmm. before. Mm. It, and do you feel like that? I mean, I'm having a, I kind of have like a physical experience of that for myself um, in moments where maybe I have been injured or I have been um, where I feel uh, vulnerable, not like in a, uh, not necessarily like in a, not in a bad way at all, but it's like, there's a, there's a, a more open sense of compassion or, um, yes. yeah, kindredness well, I think that's how something. I started. Yeah. Kindredness. Um, we, you know, the, that being broken open and rebuilding and recognizing that, no, I always knew I was going to be rebuilding myself my whole life. But when, you know, when there was a saw that took away your bone and they hammered something metal into your bone marrow and then sewed you back up, uh, that, that I am much more porous mm-hmm. even, even as I am, you know, strong like bone, I'm, I'm much more porous now. And I think it seems that like my, such a perfect yeah. way to put it. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, and maybe I think that I think people will, I think they will feel that and understand that. I, I hope. I mean, and maybe it's just me. So selfishly, I feel like yes, that's that's what I feel like. That's what I have experienced—a porousness that is also it's strong and resilient, and yet there is something really quite different 
um, your sense of urgency that you were talking about, I deeply can relate to. And feeling that there is a balance in that and the idea of porousness makes a lot of sense to me as a as a balancing um, quality. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm very grateful for the lessons I've learned from my hip, and I learn them every day. I mean, I just I I have this hashtag the role remodel, and it's I really do feel like I I am like we talked about earlier you know, learning how to walk again consciously, like learning how to do so many things consciously. And the easiest thing, the easiest thing has been the physical rehab. The hardest thing has been the emotional rehab for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, you you know, I think there's a whiplash emotionally that, you know, because your physical body, like your cells, like they love to heal. They're just like, let's repair. (laughs) You know, that's what they do. And then you just like, oh, good, I'm going to encourage this repair. And then in the meantime, you're just like struggling with your identity of like, well, who am I? How did this happen? And what's the story? And you know, your body's healing and you're like, what's the story? What happened? So mm-hmm. that whiplash and that um, disconnect is, as that for me has been, has been more painful than, you know, any scar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Jill, it's been a real pleasure to have you and to hear about your kind of your origin story and also your process and and where you are now and your relationship to Pilates. I feel like there have been a re- a lot of really um sweet nuggets for our listeners and we absolutely love having your point of view and I think um the audience is going to appreciate it as well. We're going to put all of your stuff, your info, how to connect with you and what you're up to on the show notes so people can reach out and learn more about Jill Miller and Yoga Tune-Up and the role model. And then also some information about Korean natural farming, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, so much gratitude for you both. And thanks again, Jill. Well, obviously, James and I enjoyed this interview with Jill because we got to geek out on some things that are really close to our heart, um, including the polyvagal theory and the work with the vagus nerve. I'm going to just give you a little spoiler alert, and I think that I'm cooking up something special to record at Momentum Fest. I know our good friend and colleague Jenna Safino is going to be doing a very cool live event at Momentum Fest, and that's going to be worth listening to. Uh, We're going to take a slightly different approach, so we hope you'll stay kind of with your ear to the ground on that one and see what we're up to in maybe a bonus episode for season three, because season four is going to be a wrap for Thinking Pilates Podcast. Don't cry. Don't be sad. Be sad a little bit, honestly, because it's been a really good run, but it is not the end. I've got other things cooking in the podcast department, some really fun things that might have to do with two wheels. And if you know what I'm all about, you might catch my drift, but also something on the bigger scope of movement and somatics. And I'm excited to share that with you as we move closer to the launch of that in 2020, along with the launch of my new book, Teaching Movement Matters. Ah, still in the process, but 
we have been working on the first galleys, which means all the interior design of edited content. We're about halfway there and it's pretty awesome. And it's also exhausting and completely worth it. However, Momentum Fest is just around the corner, June 21st through 23rd in Westminster, Colorado, smack dab between Boulder and Denver, a Pilates and movement celebration for practitioners, for regular people. And also some of us teachers will be there and many of us are teaching, which is super exciting. James and I will be there. A lot of other really cool people will be there too, but we don't want you to miss out on this really sweet opportunity to enjoy being with like-minded people and just having a sweet and wonderful time celebrating movement and life and each other. And you can get all of the details at MomentumFest.com. And I feel like this is just going to be a thing we do that no matter where I am in the world, Momentum Fest is likely to be something that I am promoting because I feel really strongly about the vision of creating space for us to practice movement together. Um, There just are not enough opportunities for us to be in community, especially around the movement and, and the body together. So check it out. And if this is not your year, that's fine. Put it on your calendar for next year. It's likely going to be in the third week of June. And if you can get there and you want to hang out with us, check out the schedule. James and I have some classes. We're doing a presentation on the vagus nerve, which should be fun, insightful, and hopefully educational. The other thing I want to tell you about, which I have been talking about all season, is the science and psychology of teaching master's program that I have co-created with Ann Bishop, founder of Body Brain Connect, also a long-term veteran teacher here in Northern California. We have some exciting news about the program. We are now opening up the program to two rounds a year with one live event happening in June after Momentum Fest this year. And now you have the opportunity to do the online course study, which is five months of intensive self-directed and guided study with one-on-one coaching and group calls and weekly calls, lots and lots and lots of support for an online educational experience. We're starting again in September. And that is kind of a spoiler because we have not really put that out anywhere, not even on our website. So September 16th is a Monday. It's the day that we're launching our round two of the master's program. And we just have created each year more and more awesome stuff in the program. So I am going to just send you to the website, pilatesmastersprogram.com and put some info in the show notes for you. But we really do love you and we appreciate you. And we just are so grateful for the time that you spend checking in with us and learning with us and getting curious with us. And it has been a marvelous season and your support has been amazing. So Keep up the support. If you like what we're up to, don't hesitate to leave us a review on iTunes. And if you like us, then maybe it's worth saying so and sharing the podcast with a friend. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this official last episode of season three, but the whisper in your ear is that we will be back with one more bonus surprise and secret episode. Until then... Breathe deep, ladies and gents, and teach just
just as well as you possibly can.